Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. Inflation is up, mask mandates are coming back, at least in some places, and a billionaire makes a bid for Twitter. There's a lot to get to, but there's one story that's top of mind for most people, including President Biden. I'm not going to wait to take action to help American families. I'm doing everything within my power by executive orders to bring down the price and address the Putin price hike. In fact, we've already made progress since March inflation data was collected. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide a half a world away. Joining us to guide us through this week's news is Jonathan Lemire. He's Politico's White House bureau chief. He's also a political analyst at MSNBC, where he also hosts Way Too Early. Jonathan, great to have you. Glad to be here again. Also with us is NBC correspondent Carol Lee. Carol, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. And rounding out the panel is Chris Saliza. He's a politics reporter and editor-at-large for CNN. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. So the war between Russia and Ukraine is nearing its two-month mark. As casualties rise and more cities are attacked, President Joe Biden says what's happening to the Ukrainian people is a genocide. Uh, Jonathan, earlier this month, Biden said he didn't think that what had happened so far in Ukraine amounted to the level of genocide. What's changed? What's changed is that we have seen images of atrocities in places like Bucha, other suburbs of Kyiv, and we're starting to get reports as to the horrors of Mariupol as well. This is not the first time the president has shifted tactics or, frankly, gotten out ahead rhetorically of where the administration is in terms of policy. Let's recall he declared that Vladimir Putin was a war criminal before anyone else in his administration did so. He called for Putin's removal from power before Anyone else said so. In fact, the White House tried to quickly clarify his comments that came at the very end of his European trip. And now here, he went a step further and became the first to deem it a genocide. But of note, they didn't walk these back. In fact, they sort of embraced it, although they made clear that this statement, like some of his others, were more of the president speaking from the heart, aides say, rather than declaring policy. Genocide has a legal definition, as does war crimes. Uh, So as the administration officials have said, they'll leave it up to the lawyers to determine whether or not that's actually happened. But that is where the president's mind is right now uh, as this war seemingly shifts into a new phase with Putin admitting that his initial efforts to topple Kyiv were unsuccessful and now withdrawing, if you will, or redirecting his forces to the east, uh, to the Donbass, which a more limited campaign perhaps, which is certainly good news for the Ukrainian people, but what may happen there uh, maybe months and months of a, of a brutal onslaught, a set-piece battle uh, between the two forces and just increasing calls from President Zelensky of Ukraine to the West to send more military aid. Well, Carol, as Jonathan says, the president's declaration isn't, isn't policy. So why is it significant that he said this? Well, it's significant because typically the president, what he says is that's policy. So it's an interesting line that the president's trying to walk here, particularly on foreign policy, what the president says usually is what U.S. policy is. So what he's trying to do here is say what he personally believes and 
at the same time say, but our policy officially is not what I might personally believe. It's, it's a little complicated and, and somewhat convoluted, but from the president's perspective, he's a little frustrated um, that, according to officials that I've talked to, that essentially the bureaucracy just is not does not move as fast as this situation on the ground in Ukraine is evolving. And Joe Biden, as a senator going back decades, has a history of really leaning into and, and calling things genocide and putting pressure on government officials to do that in past conflicts. And now he's president and he's seeing what's happening. And there are intelligence officials who think that this could move into what would be formally designated as genocide. And so the president's sort of reflecting that. And at the same time, there's a very rigorous legal process that is undertaken to to designate something genocide and call out a regime in this way formally. And, and one of the interesting things here is that President Biden's even ahead of human rights groups on this who are saying, you know, we haven't made that determination. And usually they're ahead of, of the U.S. government on this stuff. Um, so he's saying what he thinks and he's, his team has, have now that this is the third go around, as Jonathan just said, of, a, of an instance like this where the president's ahead of his own administration, um, they're, they're more embracing his comments and saying, hey, this is just what he means personally. We're not cleaning this up. He meant to say it. I will say it wasn't a surprise to the president's aides that he came out and publicly said this. This was something that's been under discussion in the administration for weeks. But it was a surprise that he did it at an event in Iowa about inflation. Well, for once, President Biden and former President Donald Trump agree. In an interview with Fox News this week, Trump had this to say while criticizing the economy. It is so sad to watch. And now add to that what's going on in Ukraine. That's a that's genocide. What what's happening in Ukraine is people have never seen anything like that before. Chris, what does this signal to you about how U.S. politics are shaping around Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, we know, Jen, that uh, Donald Trump is uh, careless at times, I'll say, is probably the best interpretation with his words. So he's also a former president. So him saying something is a little bit different than the current president, as Carol and Jonathan have noted. Um, You know, I think it's easy to I think we have to make the distinction between the technical legalistic definition of genocide, which has only been uh, invoked eight times, eight times since World War II. It's the result of the Holocaust. Um, and sort of there's, a, as Carol said, there's a legalistic uh, definition of what it actually means that can take months and even years to get to. But I think there's a difference between that, obviously, and what Biden and, and, and even Trump in his own way are seeing on the ground. Um, and I think we have to draw that distinction. Saying something is a genocide in it meeting what is a legal uh, historic term that makes it genocide are two uh, different things. But but again, look, Donald Trump is by far the most popular uh, figure in the Republican Party. It's not even up for debate. So when he says things, we've seen this when he makes all sorts of comments, when he said that Putin was uh, smart was uh, for going into uh, the eastern part of Ukraine. His, his words have impact. Now, he doesn't always uh, realize or maybe care. He may realize and may not care uh, how much impact his words have. Um, I think Biden is more aware. Uh, I, candidly, it would be hard to be less aware, I think, of the impact your words have than Donald Trump. Um, but again, 
he is someone in Biden who does tend to get a little bit over his skis, or at least over the skis of the administration. And certainly in this case, he is um, well beyond the sort of State Department investigation and findings into whether or not this meets the legal definition as established since World War II of genocide. Well, Biden announced $800 million in additional military aid for Ukraine, and this comes ahead of a possible Russian attack in the eastern region of Ukraine that could determine the next stages of this war. Carol, $800 million is a lot of money. What would this package include? Well, it's a mix of some of the same weapons that the U.S. has been supplying to Ukraine for some time, but also some new capabilities. And the interesting thing about this package is it's largely targeted toward fighting in the eastern Donbass region. So there are new things like howitzers, long-range artillery. There are sea drones, which are basically drone boats, which which acknowledges that there's going to be a coastal component to this next front in in the war. And the U.S. is also saying that they will train Ukrainians on using this new equipment. Um, But this is really underscoring the concern that the U.S. has about how bad it could get in Donbass. And there's this is a fight that's believed to be far more difficult for the Ukrainians in the sense that the terrain there is very different from what it, the terrain outside of Kiev, for instance. Uh, it's more rural, and, and it also is something that a place, an area that the Russians are very familiar with because they've been operating in and around this region for some eight years. So this package is designed to try to help the Ukrainians fend off the Russians in this this region. And one of the things that we've seen just in the last 24 hours is this revelation from first reported by the Washington Post that this is really starting to get under Russia's skin. And they sent this formal diplomatic note to the U.S. warning that these ship, weapons ships, shipments are adding fuel to the conflict and could bring about, quote, unpredictable consequences. So things that really seem to be escalating. You also hear, heard from the CIA director in the last 24 hours warning that given what's happened in Ukraine and how the Russians have been on their back foot a little bit, that there's a real concern that Russia could lash out and use a tactical nuclear weapon or something along those lines. So this is a package that's meant to help the Ukrainians in this region, but at the same time comes with potential consequences. Republicans on the Senate Intelligence Committee are calling for the White House to share more intelligence with Ukraine. What are they asking us to share? They are asking for the next degree of cooperation in terms of weapon systems, uh, intel in terms of what Russians might be doing. Uh, To Carol's point, tech nuclear or chemical weapons as Russia tries to also regroup for the humiliating loss of their warship in the Black Sea. Back with more in a moment. This is 1A. And remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Election season is going to look a lot different in 2024. The Republican National Committee unanimously voted to withdraw from the Commission on Presidential Debates. Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel said in a statement, quote, The commission is biased and has refused to enact simple and common sense reforms to help ensure fair debates, including hosting debates before voting begins and selecting moderators who have never worked for candidates on the debate stage, end quote. Quote. Jonathan, big picture, what does this mean for future presidential races? 
Well, it would it would be a very different look, and I think a bad one for democracy. It is important for Americans to hear from the candidates in an extended setting, allowing for questions and follow-ups uh, from an impartial moderator or moderators. This is a nonpartisan commission that has run the debates now for decades. And this goes to show, this announcement by the RNC goes to show the continued uh, grip uh, which the party is in, in the hands of Donald Trump. Uh, let's recall that, uh, though certainly, you know, there's long been predating Trump claims of from Republicans about liberal media bias. Quote, quote, uh, Trump in 2016 in a debate with Hillary Clinton complained, blamed a, a faulty microphone for his poor performance one time uh, in 2020. Uh, let's recall that he got upset when one of the debates was switched to a remote format uh, and, of course, then threatened to bail on it uh, because, of course, he had contracted coronavirus, uh, you know, a, a few days prior. And he has long held a grudge against some of the moderators, including those who work for Fox News. Uh, so what will be interesting to see is if in 2024, if Trump is the Republican nominee, and he is at this moment, you have to say the favorite, stands to reason that these debates won't happen, at least not in the way that we're normally used to seeing them. If someone else, though, were to be the Republican nominee, uh, if Trump were to not run or to be defeated, uh, then that would become an interesting pressure point to see if that candidate would go along with what the RNC wants or defy them uh, because he, he or she would not want to give up the opportunity to have exposure to tens of millions of viewers to talk about their agenda and make their case for the White House. Carol, how has the commission responded? Well, look, I think this is something that the commission, they've been on the spot since the 2020 debates. Um, there's you know, this is not something that obviously the commission welcomes. Um, and there's hopefully, I think the hope is that as we get closer to 2024, to Jonathan's point, and if this isn't a President Trump isn't the nominee, that this might be able to be reversed in some way and that it won't but look like the RNC says that it will for their nominee. But this is essentially, should it go forward, an end to presidential debates as we've known them. And the commission has been a pivotal force in in that, an organizing force. And it's been under a lot of pressure um, for in the last election cycle. And one of the debates wound up being canceled. And there was a, a number of criticisms about the format and the muting. And so there's inevitably, I think there's a recognition that inevitably there may need to be some changes to the structure, but this is certainly not something that that's welcome um, by the commission, which has been a nonpartisan entity for some time. Well, let's stick with some other news within the GOP. Patrick Philbin and Pat Cipollone, two of former President Trump's White House lawyers, have interviews scheduled with the January 6th House Select Committee. Uh, Chris, these interviews are expected to be informal. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that they're not uh, transcribed um, and that they at least open the possibility that they come back for something that's a little more formal. They're not under oath. Um, you know, this is Donald Trump has given the okay for both of these men, uh, Pat Cipollone, the, the uh, White House counsel under Trump, um, and uh, his deputy too talk to the committee in, again, I think the emphasis has to be here, in an informal way. We don't know what was said. The possibility exists, 
that they come back. Uh, these are two people who were involved or at least at the side of Donald Trump when a lot of what we do know about what happened on January 6th and the run-up to it was um, being planned. Um, both men were in uh, the meeting in which Bill Barr, the then attorney general, uh, offered his resignation and made clear to Donald Trump that the Department of Justice had not found significant evidence of voter fraud. You know, take a step back. And what we've seen is, I will say from my perspective, I'm somewhat surprised at the level of involvement that top Trump aides have uh, given to the January 6th committee. Again, we're not sure sort of what they've told and what they've refused to say, but Stephen Miller uh, was one of Trump's top aides, was uh, in front of the committee, again, in an informal manner uh, this week as well. Um, there are obviously high-profile members of the Trump inner circle, Steve Bannon being the, the biggest one who had refused to talk to the committee and who, at least in Steve Bannon's case, is being um, charged with criminal contempt. I think that Republicans may have underestimated the reach and ability here of the committee to get people to talk to them, obviously, until we see a final product or until we have public hearings, which we do expect maybe as soon as next month. We won't know the extent of what they have. But I will say, you know, what we've seen come out thus far, whether it's texts being exchanged, CNN reported uh, this morning on text uh, exchange between Mike Lee, uh, senator from Utah, Chip Roy, a congressman from uh, Texas, and uh, Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, that suggests them sort of encouraging the uh, questioning of the election. And then once they've realized that things are going south, saying Donald Trump needs to stop this. You know, we've seen a lot of things with Donald Trump's fingerprints on them, and a lot of Donald Trump's top aides have talked in some way, shape, or form to the committee. Um, again, I'm very interested to see what exactly they said in a more fulsome way. I think we will find that, uh, some in the public hearings, and then ultimately when they issue their report, which the timeline of which is indeterminate, though I assume they are aiming to be done before the election, because obviously if Republicans retake control of the House, this committee will cease to exist. Well, let's go to another Republican, Texas Governor Greg Abbott. A new border policy he rolled out is coming under pressure. Backups and heavy traffic piled up after he ordered extra inspections into commercial trucks from Mexico coming into the U.S. Uh, Jonathan, what is this border policy and why did Abbott roll it out? Abbott rolled it out uh, in the last few weeks to add enhanced uh, inspections at the border in an effort to crack down on what he has deemed to be an expected surge of migrants trying to cross the border illegally looking for people or supplies or goods destined for uh, illegal immigrants is what he is saying. Um, Democrats say it's something very different, though. They say that it is, it is pure politics. Uh, they blame Abbott for these delays at the border, significant delays, which is holding up goods, uh, putting further strain on the, on the supply chain, adding to, Democrats say, the increase in prices uh, across the board and in a moment when inflation is already such a source of concern. And they say, hey, this is being done with political motivation to hurt Democrats, and in particular, President Biden. And there's been a lot of consternation, including from some Republicans, uh, about this in recent days uh, because of these significant delays. And it looks like, though, they may be easing reports this morning that Abbott and the state of Texas have struck a deal with two Mexican provinces uh, that would eliminate uh, some of the screenings and therefore uh, reduce some of the backlog there at the border. Well, let's stick with the economy for the moment. This month, consumer prices jumped 8.5 percent from last year. That's the sharpest increase in inflation since December of 1981, roughly 40 years 
We're getting some questions about this. Todd emailed, inflation is an inescapable byproduct of beating COVID, preventing a deep recession, raising wages, the best job growth in U.S. history, and supply chain chaos greatly exacerbated by Russia's unconscionable war against Ukraine. And Jay emailed, how much of inflation are ripples from the pandemic? As much as the Republicans blame President Biden, what can he even do to affect worldwide prices? Jonathan, I know we want to, we have to let you go, but I'd love to hear from you on this before you do. Yeah, no, there's no question that uh, inflation is top of mind. It's a real concern for uh, this this White House. You know, we saw the president go to he, he in a, an effort here for the administration to pivot back a little bit to domestic issues. Obviously, the war in Europe is still front of mind for this administration, will continue to be. But we saw the president uh, was in North Carolina yesterday for an event on supply chain. Uh, he was in Iowa earlier in the week uh, touting a, a, the allowance of ethanol added fuel over the summer, which should keep prices down at least slightly. Uh, and there has been, White House aides are quick to point out, gas prices have dropped a little bit in the last week or two. But inflation is huge. It will be a dominating factor uh, this year heading into the midterms. And, and, and Democrats are deeply worried because of the supply chain and because because of uh, you know the rising prices, that that even more than international issues could be uh, what spells trouble for them at the ballot box. That's Politico's White House bureau chief Jonathan Lemire. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Do it again soon, Chris. I do want to focus in on Jay's email there. Uh, how much of the inflation are ripples from the pandemic, and what can President Biden do to affect what we're seeing as inflation worldwide? Let me answer the second question first, and I think it gets to Jonathan's point about why this would be an issue in the midterms. The, the, the answer to what the president can do is relatively limited. You know, there's an old cliche that goes with uh, presidents get too much credit when the economy is good and too much blame when the economy is poor, because particularly in the global society in which we live, even a president of the United States, which I'm not going to argue is obviously an extremely powerful position, there's only so much he can do to move markets and to and to affect this. Um, the White House, I think, made a bit of a mistake a month or two ago when they insisted that this was sort of a temporary blip as the economy recovered uh, from the pandemic and that inflation would immediately begin to drop. The 8.5% growth uh, in March versus the prior March is the highest since December of 1981. Anytime you're getting into the highest number uh, in terms of inflation in 40 years, you are in a tough spot. I think what's really t- difficult for the Biden administration is they're trying to argue to what could look like contrasting things. They're trying to argue on the one hand, unemployment was 3.6%. Jobs are growing uh, considerably. We are getting close to recovering all the jobs that were lost in March of 2020, right at, when the pandemic hit. At the same time, People are going to fill up their gas tank and it's costing $75 or $80. People are going to buy their groceries and food was up 13% um, from March uh, of 2021 to March of 2022. So the issue is people are feeling it on a daily basis. And that's always the danger, um, politically speaking, that when it impacts people on a daily basis, that's when it impacts their vote. And But Joe Biden has just a very limited tool set uh, to change things. Hmm. Uh, Carol, your thoughts. How do you think this is going to play out in the midterms? Look, this is a year ago, if you asked the White House if they could take one thing off the table in terms of their political problems, it would have been coronavirus. Now, that feels largely 
to a certain extent, at least manageable. And if they could take one thing off the table politically in terms of a headache, it is inflation. If you look at the president's polling numbers, NBC News had a poll, our most recent one, that shows his handling of the economy, the way that Americans feel about that is just consistently dropping. It is at 33% of Americans think he's doing a good job on the economy. That is not where a president wants to be or a Democratic Party wants to be heading into midterm elections, which already put the party in power at a disadvantage historically. So you see the president trying to talk about this. At first, the message was, hey, we can do something about this. We can do something about gas prices. We're going to work on inflation. Now it's more of a blame game. You know, it's Putin's fault. It's residual effects from coronavirus and the pandemic. And they're just trying to figure out a way to highlight that he's trying to do something about this. We've seen him in Iowa. We saw him in North Carolina this week. This is the most he's really been out in the country talking about domestic issues in some time, largely because of his focus on, on Ukraine. But they're trying to find a way to move through this with, while also knowing, knowing to Chris's point, that there isn't really much he can do policy-wise. They're, the Federal Reserve has a role to play here. The president is trying to push an agenda that's completely stalled in Congress. There's some hope that he could get some things through that might help. That's really a long shot at this stage, and the window for legislation in a midterm election year is closing. And there are also no people talking about a potential recession on the horizon. So none of that, politically speaking, is good news for the president. They know it, and they're trying to figure out how to, what to do about it. Well, President Biden made another move this week. He announced Steve Diddleback as his pick to head the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives on Monday. The president also revealed plans to combat the nation's gun violence problem. Today, the United States Department of Justice is making it illegal for a business to manufacture one of these kits without a serial number. Illegal. Illegal for a licensed gun dealer to sell them without a background check. And starting today, weapons like the one used in Saugus High School and to ambush deputies with us to, that are here with us today are being treated like the deadly firearms they are. Carol, briefly, who is Steve Diddleback? He's a former U.S. attorney from Ohio, and if he's confirmed, he would be the first person to hold this office since 2013. So that gives you a sense of how controversial this office is. The last nominee that the president put up had to withdraw. And so this is something that has not necessarily gone well for the administration so far. There's hope that this will be successful um, and that that the candidate nominee will indeed be able to get through the Senate. But it, that remains to be seen. Well, Chris, that other nominee was David Chipman. He was Biden's first choice for this role. Very briefly, what, if anything, is, is different this time around? Well, so Chipman was uh, forced to withdraw when some moderate Democrats, as well as all Republicans, were worried about his every town of gun safety. He had worked for that Michael Bloomberg work group, had worked for Gabrielle Giffords group. They just viewed him as too anti-gun. 
Um, we'll, we'll see if Gettleback falls victim of that. But this, as Carol said, is a hugely political office and has only become more so in recent week, uh, decades. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more after the break. This is the News Roundup. Let's turn to the latest in COVID news. This week, the CDC estimated the highly transmissible BA2 Omicron subvariant is now responsible for nearly 86% of COVID cases in the United States. The subvariant makes up 90% of COVID infections in the Northeast, where case rates have doubled in recent weeks. The uptick in cases prompted the Biden administration to extend the deadline for the national mask mandate for airplanes and public transit to May 3rd. The CDC said the extension will give officials more time to assess how the spread of BA2 affects hospitalization levels and deaths. We got this tweet from Bill who says the only reason I still wear masks is because they're still required on public transportation and I have nowhere to put them after I get off the bus. Now, Carol, originally the mask mandate for planes and public transportation was set to end on Monday, April 18th. Why did the administration settle on May 3rd? Is two weeks enough to assess the impact of BA2? Well, that's what the CDC is saying, that if you Two weeks, these 15 days will give them the time to assess what exactly is going on with the B2 variant and where it might be raging. Right now, it's obviously very prevalent in the Northeast. Um, And so several weeks ago, the expectation was that this would be lifted. There's been a lot of pressure from the airlines on the administration to lift this. And, you know, people... There's a lot of COVID fatigue. There are a number of people who are over it and just want to take the masks off. Um, And transportation is one of those last places where masks are required, also hospitals, but just in terms of people going about their, their daily lives. So with this new variant, they decided that they would take a beat and see what happens with this new spike in cases. The belief going forward is that we're not going to be in this space where this is being extended for months at a time going forward, that if they do reach May 3rd and there's still a concern about this variant or perhaps another variant or in the future, that they would just extend it for these short-term durations. The concern is that once you take the masks off, how do you get them back on? The airlines have been have experienced some of the really, um, you know, aggressive pushback from consumers about wearing masks. And so there is that side of, of the debate that if you tell people to take them off now, how do you get them to put them back on when this has been such a struggle to begin with? But again, the airlines really want this. Um, the lobbyists have been pushing for this. Um, so while some people are frustrated with it, Uh, this is something that the CDC said is the prudent thing to do at this particular time. Well, Chris, as Carol says, airline industry industry groups have come out strongly against an extension of that mask mandate. If a mask requirement for planes is lifted or or loosened, how do you think that will impact air travel and the people who get us from point A to B? Well, I mean, I think what we've seen with air travel, business air travel remains uh, lower than it was pre-pandemic, but personal travel uh, has gone through the roof. I can personally attest to this, having uh, just gone through spring break with my kids. Uh, Every airport we went into was absolutely packed. Every airplane we were on was absolutely packed. I'll also say that the people in front of us refused to wear masks, uh, despite being told repeatedly by the uh, flight attendants to do so. You know, the, the 
the recourse that a flight attendant has in that situation is relatively limited. Um, the, we are 30,000 feet above the ground. We're not going to remove the people from the plane at that moment. So I think to Carol's point, it's easier to extend a, a mask mandate that's already in place than it is to revoke it and then try to put it back into place. I mean, I think the reality is the Biden administration is doing everything they can to project uh, calm and uh, that that we are in a new phase of this uh, pandemic, that it is one we are living with, that the, the virus is currently mild in most people, particularly those if you've been vaccinated and boosted, and that we are not going to go back to some of the more onerous uh, restriction. At the same time, I think of it as, as a duck floating uh, very gently above the water, but paddling furiously under the water. I think the, the reality is that the Biden administration doesn't know where this subvariant is necessarily headed. Two weeks is an attempt to buy itself a little bit of time uh, in order to figure things out better. Cases are up in 31 states. Now, in some of those places, they're up marginally. I don't want to suggest that, you know, there's a, like Omicron, uh, a massive surge. But this virus has proven, uh, you know, over and over again to confound the the best predictions of our smartest uh, uh, epidemiologists and, and doctors. I think the Biden administration is hoping that doesn't happen this time. But if past his prologue, you know, I, I think in on May 3rd, when this uh, ban is supposed to end, there'll be another assessment. And if we are in the midst of what looks like a bump, whether a moderate, mild or severe one, uh, they will again reassess this. I think this is buying them time more than anything else. Well, this week, President Biden also extended the national public health emergency that's been in place since early 2020 for another 90 days. And this will keep in place certain health benefits like flexibility around telehealth and broader Medicaid coverage for the most vulnerable Americans who may have lost health care coverage otherwise. But meanwhile, the U.S. is poised to surpass one million deaths from coronavirus. According to the CDC, it's now the third most common cause of death in America. And uh, Carol, I, I, I struggle to wrap my head around that number, especially as, as much of the country is pushing for looser guidelines on COVID restrictions. How are you reflecting on this moment? Yeah, it's really a staggering number. It's just remarkable. And, you know, despite all of the advances that have been made on the pandemic, vaccines, therapeutics, antivirals, there's almost a million people who didn't benefit from that. And as a country, it's something that I don't think we pause and reflect on very often. There is a group out there advocating for an annual National Day of Remembrance for these million people um, who died from from COVID. And the idea is to create a sort of a memorial prototype that could be replicated in in places across the country. Um, There's some support in Congress for that. Um, You know, the White House has has not wanted to talk about this as much. There used to be a time when the president would mark these sort of grim milestones that that and acknowledge what the suffering people were having about COVID. He doesn't really do that now. Um, And we heard from the White House press secretary earlier this month in terms of a memorial that they're open to it. But right now they're still battling the virus and, and focused on that. And so it's something I think if you're a family or you have a loved one who is among those million people who've who died from coronavirus, it's something that is very visceral to you and you think about every day. Um, and yet 
the rest of us are are sort of moving on and, and going about our lives with vaccines and other things. And that is something I think that people there's a there's a momentum towards trying to acknowledge the pain and really what's happened here. Let's turn to a story out of Michigan. Marie emailed this week the body cam footage of Patrick Leola's death was released by the Grand Rapids Police Department. Viewing the video, it sure appears an execution-style killing of a black man by a white police officer. Why is it this tragedy is not garnering the same level of national outrage as George Floyd's killing? And Susan emailed, I live in rural mid-Michigan, not near Grand Rapids, but when I heard the news of the shooting on BBC World News yesterday, I was so upset that this is what put Michigan in the news again. Nowhere in the test to get a driver's license is there information on what to do if stopped. When will this stop? And both of those messages refer to the Grand Rapids Police Department in Michigan's releasing video footage of a white unnamed officer fatally shooting Patrick Leoya, a black 26-year-old man. Leoya was pulled over by the officer in a traffic stop, and video footage shows a struggle and foot chase. The officer then shot Leoya in the head as they were on the ground. Chris, in the video, you can hear the officer yelling, an investigation is underway, but but what do we actually know at this point about what happened? Uh, not enough, I think, is the answer. Um, what we know, and, and, and this is a little bit shocking to me, uh, is that th- this incident escalated from being pulled over for improper registration on a car. Uh, that, th- th- that it went in the space of what looks like under five minutes from that to Mr. Leolia being shot in the head. Uh, is what I think we are determining. His family held a press conference on Thursday in which they called for the resignation and prosecution of the the officer involved. One um, thing that's worth noting here is that about two minutes and 40 seconds into the arrest, the body cam of the officer was turned off, which takes a conscious act. You have to hold down a button in order to do that. It's uh, The police have suggested the, res- the reason that that happened was uh, he was pressed up against uh, Mr. Leolia and it, it was accidentally turned off. There is other footage. There's security cam footage um, from uh, a home nearby, I believe, that shows the, the actual incident in which, in which the, uh, Mr. Leolia was shot uh, in the head and killed. I'm always hesitant, I I think rightly, in these situations where we're still in the information gathering phase to to offer up too too much in terms of judgment. Uh, I will say that the the circumstances of an unarmed black man being shot in the head after by a white police officer after being pulled over for improper registration uh, seems an an outsized, to, to say the least, reaction. Um, obviously this is not going away. I think we're going to hear more about this case. Uh, the Grand Rapids police, I think the, the, the onus and burden is in their, uh, camp to explain how this went so wrong so quickly. Let's turn to another story. On Tuesday, a man dressed in construction gear set off smoke grenades and opened fire in a New York City subway car. At least 23 people were injured, but no one was killed. The attack set off an intense manhunt, and the police arrested Frank James and took him into custody a day after the shooting. I am truly fortunate to stand here among these extraordinary investigators and federal partners to make this announcement. Moments ago, Frank Robert James was stopped on the street and arrested by members of the New York City Police Department. 
officers in response to a Crime Stoppers tip stopped Mr. James at 1.42 p.m. at the corner of St. Mark's Place and First Avenue in Manhattan. He was taken into custody without incident and has been transported to an NYPD facility. He will be charged with committing yesterday's appalling crime in Brooklyn. That was New York City Police Commissioner Keyshant Sewell. Uh, Carol, what do we know so far about the suspect, Frank James? Well, we know that he essentially turned himself in, that there was this manhunt um, for him and that he called and said, hey, I I think you're looking for me. Um, So, you know, it, it stands to reason that you could ask the question of what how long would this have gone on if, if he hadn't done that? Um, there was obviously every, everyone in the entire city was on high alert. This is a situation where the city of New York has not been sort of terrorized like this in, in decades. And it, it was, you had schools locked down and there was just, everybody was genu- genuinely terrified about what this could ultimately be because people didn't really know at the time. We, he has not been given bail. He, he did not enter a plea. His lawyer has asked for a psychiatric evaluation of him and publicly said, you know, urged people not to judge the case based on initial reports. Um, but look, this is, even though no one was killed, thankfully, in this um, tragedy, there this is someone who's looking at potentially life in prison because of a federal statute, and, and he was on a mode of, of transportation. And so we'll continue to see how this plays out. One other piece of this that the city has had to answer for is there were security camera problems um, in this subway station, and they're, they're saying that that was a connectivity issue. It was discovered the day before, and they were working to restore it. But surely there will be questions and, and an effort to try to make sure that everything that's functioning in the city is functioning properly because of this is we're in a state of, of heightened crime. We have a new mayor who said that this is a, a top priority for him. Um, and this instance really put everybody on edge. Well, we've got time for one more story before we wrap up. Tesla CEO Elon Musk is Twitter's largest individual shareholder and an avid user. But on Thursday, he announced he wants more. In fact, he wants all of it. Musk has bid $43 billion to buy Twitter and take the company private. Here he is on Thursday speaking on the TED stage about the bid. My, my strong intuitive sense is that uh, having a public platform that is maximally trusted um, and, 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 and broadly inclusive um, is extremely important to the future of civilization. But you've, um, you've described I, yourself. I, I don't care about the economics at all. So he put out this unsolicited, massive bid. He then said he's, quote, not sure he'll be able to buy Twitter after all. Yesterday, Twitter CEO told employees in a staff meeting that, that the company is evaluating the offer but is not held hostage by it. Chris, really briefly, what's going on? Well, Elon Musk is worth $200 plus billion and is uh, using his throwing his wealth around. Um, I was struck by his comments at TED uh, Yesterday, in which he essentially said the economy, the economics of this, me buying this, don't make a lot of sense, and I'm not sure I, I'm gonna, it's gonna be able to work. A cynic would suggest that Musk, uh, who was offered a seat on the Twitter board and then rejected it prior to uh, this bid, that he is looking for a way to dump those uh, 
9.1% share uh, that he owns in Twitter. And this is a way to say, well, they didn't let me buy it, so I'm getting out of it. I'm getting rid of it. We'll see. But he's done things similar, maybe not on this scale, before. That's Chris Saliza. He's a politics reporter and editor-at-large for CNN. Also with us today, Carol Lee, an NBC correspondent. Thanks to you both. Juanay's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Chris Castano is our digital editor. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. Every week, we set aside this hour to focus on what's been going on overseas. We have stories from France, the UK, and Saudi Arabia, but of course the world's attention remains on the war in Ukraine. That country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, made it clear in a video posted on Wednesday that, in his words, freedom must be armed better than tyranny. We need heavy artillery, armed vehicles, air defense systems, and combat aircraft anything to repel Russian forces and stop their war crimes. Western countries have everything to make it happen. The final victory over the tyranny and the number of people saved depends on them. Arm Ukraine now to defend freedom. Both the U.S. and its European allies are convinced Russia is poised to escalate assaults in eastern Ukraine. And that was before Moscow sustained a significant setback with the sinking of its flagship warship on the Black Sea. Let's get into all of it. Our guests this week are Nick Schifrin, foreign affairs and defense correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Nick, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Also with us, Amy McKinnon. Amy is a national security reporter for foreign policy. Amy, welcome back. Happy to be here. And Emily Tampkin is U.S. editor for The New Statesman. Emily, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to start with this email we got from Jeremy, who says, I'm sure you'll be commenting on the sinking of the cruiser. Please mention the seemingly retaliatory bombings across Ukraine that continue to civilian to kill civilians. Nick, first, what more do we know about Russia's flagship warship that ended up at the bottom of the Black Sea? The Moskva is a fascinating story, actually. It was commissioned uh, in the 80s in what was then the Soviet Union in Ukraine, in Mykolaiv, one of the main cities that today Russia has tried to bombard and and take over. Uh, And it's really been associated with every part uh, of Russian foreign policy, Russian military uh, uh, steps in the last 20 years. Uh, It was part of Putin's outreach to NATO in in the early 2000s, but then it became part of his targeting NATO, uh, both uh, in Georgia in 2008, in 2014, when Putin first targeted Crimea and eastern Ukraine, and and of course this war as well. Uh, And it's the flagship of one of the most important parts of the Russian Navy. We do not know why it sank. All we know is that it was about 60 miles off the coast of Odessa, the, the main port in the Black Sea in southern Ukraine, when it caught fire. And uh, the Ukrainians say they hit it with two Neptune missiles. Uh, the Russians say there was some kind of accident of ammunition on, on board. Um, so, and the U.S. has not been able to verify either claim. But it is now uh, at the bottom of the ocean, and, and it has become a symbol 
of Ukrainian resistance, not only uh, its fate today, but also it was involved in one of the most notorious early actions of the war, uh, where it tried to kill Ukrainians on a little island uh, off the Ukraine coast. Um, the uh, slogan, which cannot be repeated on public radio, that Ukrainian soldiers gave to that boat became a slogan that Zelensky has used, and, and you see all across Ukraine, uh, a symbol of Ukrainian resistance. Uh, to the second part of Jeremy email, Jeremy's email, Amy, how has Russia responded? Well, a spokesperson for the Ukrainian Armed Forces today said in a briefing that there had been a real uptick on Russian missile strikes in the south um, on Thursday night, which they believe to be a retaliation um, for the sinking of, of the Moskva, um, of, of the Russian cruiser. But you know, all of this is coming against the backdrop of what you know many military analysts and Ukrainian and Western officials believe is going to be a really bitter and quite probably decisive battle in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine in the coming days and weeks ahead, um, which some analysts that we spoke to this week believe could uh, in many ways decide the fate of the war. And there's a lot that hangs in the balance. You know, Russia's troops are really battered and bruised by the initial phases of the war. What we're seeing right now is they're repositioning forces that were in uh, around the Kiev region in northern Ukraine. They're moving them towards the east. They're trying to to cobble together units out of the forces that they have left. And Russia has, you know, has sizable manpower. It is a very large country, but they have also taken incredible losses. And so a lot depends on whether they're able to kind of piece together those forces. If they're not able to do that and mount a an effective offensive in the Donbass, it's very unclear where this war goes from there for Russia. Russia. But similarly, you know, their capabilities are very mismatched. While Russia is pretty rich in armaments, it has a lot of uh, military hardware it's disposable at its disposal, but has a bruised, battered military. Ukraine, on the other hand, has a very highly motivated force, um, but is very dependent on, on Western armaments. And so that's going to be the kind of battle that we're going to see playing out um, in the coming weeks ahead in eastern Ukraine. Now, this week, President Zelensky said his forces captured a top Putin ally. Emily, who is he? So he was referring to Viktor Medvedchuk, who is a 67-year-old member of the pro-Russian uh, pro-Russian opposition party. He is also, more relevantly, um, believed to be Putin's best Ukrainian friend and a close Putin partner. Um, he's thought to be Putin is thought to be the godfather of Medvedchuk's daughter. Um, he some speculated that if they were able to install a puppet government in Ukraine, that that he would have been the choice. Um, he had been under house arrest. Um, for for charges of under charges of treason, escaped as the in the in the confusion of the early days of of the the Russian war, um, he was caught. He his assets are now being seized. Which just to give listeners a scope of of the oligarchy here: twenty six cars, thirty two apartments, twenty three houses, thirty plots of land, seventeen parking spots, and a yacht, um, according to Ukraine Security Service. So. Uh, there, there are Ukrainians who hope that this will be uh, that that this this man will be um, sort of a bargaining chip, right? This is Putin's close friend and his ally. Um, but beyond being a, a devastating symbol, um, I don't know if we can expect loyalty from the Kremlin uh, to this captured person.
Well, the city of Mariupol in southeastern Ukraine has seen some of the harshest fighting since Russia's latest invasion began February 24th. Ukraine's president says he believes tens of thousands of people have been killed there. On Wednesday, Russian state TV broadcast images it claimed were Ukrainian soldiers surrendering in Mariupol. Russia says more than a thousand Marines had given up fighting in the besieged port city, but those claims have not been verified. Amy, how significant could Russian gains in Mariupol be as the country shifts its military? military strategy to the east. Russia seizing Mariupol would be pretty significant. It would um, it would give them a major foothold on the Black Sea coast, on the coast, sorry, um, to from which they could push up north and this, you know, what is thought to be this coming offensive in the Donbass. Um, it would be, I think, you know, Ukrainians have, have held out for so long and fought so valiantly. I mean, Mariupol has, has held on for so much longer, I think, than anybody really expected. But I think it would be a real blow um, uh, once that finally and and what many think inevitably does happen. Um, but it's going to give it's going to give Russia, you know, a, a pretty strategic foothold on the coast from which they can both push along that coast, um, but also push north north into the into the Donbass. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin continues his disinformation campaign. On Tuesday, he met with the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, and suggested images of civilian massacres in the town of Bucha were quote-unquote fake and staged by foreign agents. Nick, what impact is Putin's propaganda having on building support for the war effort at home in Russia? A successful one. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, those of us who report uh, on, on Moscow, on Russia, we so often talk to English speakers. We so often talk to people who live in St. Petersburg or Moscow or who are members of this 10% or 15%, according to independent polls by Levada, which is the leading pollster in Russia, uh, who oppose Putin. And, and those are the most uh, Western-leaning people. They're, they're the most open to um, uh, Western arguments about Putin. Uh, the vast majority of Russians, uh, I would say, do not consume our news. Uh, they are consuming news um, that's largely controlled by the Kremlin on, on Russian TV. 90% of Russians get their news from Russian TV. And there's support for Putin. There's support for the war. I'll give you an anecdotal story uh, that I've heard. Uh, I was in Ukraine a few weeks ago and talked to people leaving Kharkiv, the Ukraine's second largest city and the largest city that's close to the Russian border. And uh, a couple who were fleeing Russian bombs uh, told me that they were talking to their Russian siblings, Russian cousins, and, and those people in Russia didn't even believe that there was uh, an onslaught on Kharkiv and would not believe them even though these this Ukrainian couple sent them photos. The polls also suggest that Putin's popularity has gone tw- up 20 percent, 30 percent since this war began. Now, we don't really know if that's, if, if that's all that accurate, but the bottom line is that um, Putin has been shrinking the space for any kind of criticism, any kind of dissent for many years. Uh, And that has further shrunk to the point where at this most critical moment, there's almost no dissenting voice left. Well, one outspoken critic of the Kremlin, Vladimir Karamurza, was detained by Russian authorities on Monday. And this came hours after the Russian opposition politician gave an interview to CNN. This regime that is in power in our country today, it's not just corrupt. It's not just kleptocratic. It's not just authoritarian. It is a regime of murderers. And it is important to, to say it out loud. And it, it is it is it is really tragic, frankly. I have no other word for this. 
that it took a large-scale war in the middle of Europe, which Vladimir Putin is now conducting against Ukraine, for uh, most Western leaders to finally open their eyes to the true nature of this regime. Secretary of State Antony Blinken tweeted Monday the U.S. is, quote, monitoring the situation closely and urging his immediate release. On Sunday, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke to CNN. He said Putin is, quote, systematically targeting civilians, end quote. But he didn't use the word genocide. While on a trip to Iowa Tuesday, President Biden felt no reason to be so circumspect. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide and a half a world away. Yes, I call it genocide because it's become clearer and clearer that Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be a Ukrainian. And though they agree on practically nothing, this is Joe Biden's predecessor speaking to Fox News on Wednesday. It is so sad to watch what's going on in Ukraine. That's a that's genocide. What what's happening in Ukraine is people have never seen anything like that before. Nick, what difference does it make if a world leader calls what's going on a genocide or not? Legally, very little. Um, So if the U.S. were to determine that, yes, indeed, Russia is committing genocide, and that is not a determination made by the president during uh, an offhanded remark uh, or even a scripted remark, it's a determination made by the secretary of state who's advised by the Office of Legal Advisor in in the State Department. But if that were determination were to be made, uh, legally, the only requirement that the U.S. would have is to hold the perpetrators to account. That is something that the U.S. is already doing, working with Ukrainian prosecutor general, the the top lawyer in Ukraine, as well as European lawyers, the U.S. uh, All of the sides are are going down multiple paths, whether to hold Russia accountable for war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, a third category, crimes of aggression, uh, whether that's in the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice, or, or in a special tribunal. All of that is being worked out. But genocide is the big word the big political word uh, that would put pressure on everyone (laughs) to to figure out how to punish Putin even more and how to support Ukraine. Uh, It's a very high bar legally to prove. It it is, quote, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national group, in this case, Ukraine. There are uh, examples that we could talk about, uh, of course, uh, of systematic rapes and uh, murder of Ukrainians, as well as moving Ukrainian children out of Ukraine, making them Russian, re-educating them, that we've seen in the last month that are definitely going to be examples uh, of what some of the people who believe genocide is occurring. Uh, but it's it's a very high bar, and, and the president's definition of the idea of being Ukrainian isn't quite it. Uh, there, there's something that a lot of people are going to be working on to figure out uh, if they can prove that Russia, quote, uh, intends to destroy, unquote, the idea of being Ukrainian. Well, Emily, Nick alludes to the bigger question here. How are world leaders grappling with the idea that the leader of a nuclear power stands accused of, of being a war criminal? There are a couple things here. Um, I mean, many countries, including Ukraine, including the ICC, are looking into war crimes and looking at how those might be prosecuted and investigated. Um, as many have noted, that there is a long there, there's a long road between declaring something a war crime or declaring the president of a country uh, a war criminal and actually bringing that person to justice. There, some say, well, okay, if if we can't prove that Putin committed a war crime, perhaps we could say that Russia has committed a crime of aggression. The problem with that is that the body that would carry that out um, is the International Criminal Court. Russia, like the United States, and for that matter, like Ukraine, is not a state party to the ICC. Um, so 
you know, I just think to, to reiterate what Nick is saying, there's a very, there's a big difference between saying this is horrible or even saying this is a genocide and changing your policy to, changing your policy to reflect that or even getting justice for the victims of those, uh, whatever term we end up deciding to use. We got this question via email. Joe asks, since Putin apparently enjoys widespread support among the Russian people based primarily on the propaganda spread by state TV and radio, why isn't the U.S. doing more to knock Russian television and radio off the air and broadcast the real story to the Russian populace? Amy, is that even an option? Technically speaking, I don't know, but I think it would be seen as a very highly provocative move for the U.S. to do that. But what what the U.S. and, and other um, Western governments, but also um, Western media organizations and philanthropic foundations are trying to do is to look at the question of how do you keep getting independent information about the war into Russia, which is um, just now so uh, dominated by state media and by the Kremlin propaganda line. I mean, until the, there has been a kind of steady crackdown in Russia, but until the war, there was, there was a couple of outlets left that you could go to for independent information, for information that was critical of the Kremlin. Uh, They have now entirely been shut down. And there's reporting that something like 150 Russian journalists have, independent Russian journalists have left the country since the war began, because it's essentially become impossible to report on the war in any kind of truthful or independent way. The the um, Russian government passed a new law which which criminalizes describing it as a war um, or in any of those or in any of those terms. Um, and so what you know, there's we did a story on this a couple of weeks ago, and there's all kinds of efforts underway. A lot of the New York Times has set up a Telegram channel, for example, which um, is a very popular social media platform in Russia, which does still exist. Um, there's efforts to um, and there's kind of other creative ways. There's there's Bots being set up so that if for Russians to type in um, the, the the day's lottery numbers into tell into Twitter or tell I think it's Telegram um, and that will give them independent information on the war and there's all kinds of like creative ways but also some old fashioned ways I mean there's talks um, underway at Voice of America about do they do they um, uh, resurrect old shortwave radio frequencies that they have from the old days of the Cold War so so various efforts going on to try and make sure that the Russians who want to find independent information about the war can actually get access to that. Well, President Biden held an hour-long call with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi on Monday. One U.S. official described it as a quote-unquote candid exchange of views. India has continued to buy Russian oil during the war in Ukraine as other countries stop or cut back. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki pushed back against the rumors that the call with the Prime Minister was adversarial. What India has done to date is they have condemned the killings of civilians in Bucha. They've provided over 90 tons of humanitarian relief material to Ukraine and its neighbors to include medicine and other essential relief. Earlier in the conflict, they also used its resources to evacuate almost 150 foreign nationals for 18 different countries. So part of our objectives now is to build on that and to encourage them to do more. Now, India hasn't condemned Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, and it abstained from voting to suspend Russia from the UN's Human Rights Council. Just lay out some of the dynamics that are at play here, Emily. What I think is very interesting is that prior to this war, India was one of the countries to which the United States was making great overtures because they, the Biden administration clearly planned to work with India to counter China, specifically in the Indo-Pacific, and was sort of going to you know, respect the fact that India had this long-standing relationship, close relationship with Russia, um, including on defense. India buys something like 60 to 70 percent of its defense equipment comes from Russia. Obviously, um, 
the war, the Russian war in Ukraine changes things. Now, I think that U.S. leaders and people in Washington understand that India is going to continue to abstain at the U.N., where it becomes more complicated is, okay, India is planning, you know, purchasing these S-400, this missile, this defense system from, from Russia. Um, does it still get sanctions waivers, um, which, you know, it would normally be sanctioned under CATSA? Are, are those sanctions still waived? If India goes ahead and purchases uh, Russian oil, what does the United States say or do? India might point out that Europe purchases far more uh, of its of its energy products from from Russia than, than India does. Um, but Europe is also making more full-throated statements against Russia than India is. Another interesting dynamic th this week that I wanted to point out was that um, the United States often appeals to the fact that India and the United States are both democracies and have similar values. Overlooking or, or putting out very muted statements about human rights abuses and violations, excuse me, specifically against Muslims in India. You saw sort of some remarks noting that there are these violations this week. And then um, Jai Shankar, who's the, you know, Blinken's equivalent in India, made some note about, um, you know, well, there are also human rights uh, violations in the United States that we watch. So I, I think we should expect the United States and India to continue to try to work together. There is a lot riding on this relationship, but it is interesting to me how cracks in the relationship are, are showing. Margaret emailed, with 39% of people in the Donbass region apparently ethnically Russian, it looks like victory there by Ukraine will be unlikely without many more years of conflict. This area has already been in conflict for eight years, a poor prognosis in my opinion. Nick, your response to Margaret's email there? So we have to remember who started this. Um, Russia uh, invaded Crimea with additional soldiers, even though Russia already had soldiers on the peninsula in 2014, and forcibly annexed Crimea. And then it fomented an insurgency in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass. Uh, and when that was faltering, sent in regular troops into the Donbass, having taken off all of their flags and insignia to have some kind of claim of deniability in 2014. And that created what we call the line of contact. That created the, the line uh, uh, that separates uh, essentially Russian-controlled parts of Donetsk and Luhansk from Ukrainian-controlled Ukraine. Uh, and that land is still uh, uh, up for grabs, uh, I suppose you could say. That land will still be the focus for the next phase, the next chapter uh, of this war that we were talking about earlier, assuming that Russia is able to coalesce a little bit in, in the east. So yes, Ukraine has been at war with Russia for eight years, uh, but it also has been trained by NATO and the U.S. for eight years. It has also been uh, much more Western-leaning uh, in the last eight years because of what Russia has done. Uh, and all of that has helped Ukraine create, one, a national identity, or, or at least more of a national identity, uh, a proud Ukrainian national identity as distinct from its Soviet and Russian past. Uh, and two, it has helped create a Ukrainian military that is clearly more able to take on the Russian military, as we have seen uh, over the last seven weeks or so. Well, Finland and Sweden took a major step towards joining NATO on Wednesday. The country's prime ministers held a joint press conference where Sweden's leaders said Europe's security landscape has quote-unquote completely changed since Russia invaded Ukraine February 24th. The Finnish prime minister, Sanna Marin, said her country would decide whether to apply to join the alliance in weeks, not months. Finland shares an 800-mile border with Russia, and here's what they both had to say, starting with Swedish prime 
Prime Minister Magdalena Anderson. We have to really think through what is best for Sweden and our security and our peace in this new situation. Everything changed when Russia invaded Ukraine. I think people's mindset in Finland, also in Sweden, changed and shifted uh, very dramatically because of Russia's actions. That was Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson, followed by Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin. Emily, what's the likelihood that Finland and Sweden will join NATO? I think it's gone from the beginning of this war, not likely at all, to now quite likely. Um, they're clearly signaling that, that, is, that that's the road that they are on. We got, um, and, and it just, I mean, I think they previously had made two assumptions, which is that Russia wouldn't invade and that if they did, uh, their, their friends, partners and allies would come to their aid. And we're seeing right now that for NATO countries, NATO membership is a very clear line. Um, you know, this long this long border with Russia, where once it was seen as a reason not to join and not to provoke Russia, is now is now a reminder of how vulnerable Finland is to Russia outside of NATO. It's a little more complicated in Sweden, but there, um, Prime Minister Anderson has elections coming up later this year, and if support for joining NATO is joining in Sweden, she and her party are not necessarily going to want to appear to be the things that are the the, the figures standing uh, in between Sweden and NATO membership. And we should know that both are historically neutral countries. So, Nick, how might this move change the relationship with Russia, particularly Finland? It probably won't change the relationship with Russia. Um, You know, Finnish officials, Swedish officials would argue that that to a certain extent they made a choice when they joined the EU, uh, and that was 20 years ago. Uh, And Finland and Sweden are integrated into NATO militarily. They're integrated into the North Atlantic Council, so so their ambassadors at NATO actually sit in the room for for a lot of these discussions. So it, it, it may not make a huge difference uh, in the actual relationship with Russia. But, of course, Russia is threatening uh, that it will. So to just today, Russia threatened to put uh, more weapons, uh, hypersonics and nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad. That is the little enclave uh, that sits uh, as part of the Baltics, basically just northeast of Poland. That is something that American officials, European officials have been very worried uh, about for many years. And so Russia pulled out that card immediately. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that it's, it's more likely than not at this point that Finland and Sweden would join NATO. Certainly the expectation in both Brussels uh, and Washington is that they will. And that is just such a significant change. Uh, it's a really, it's a real strategic shift for these countries that, yes, they have been part of the EU, yes, they have integrated into NATO, uh, but they haven't been willing to take that next step. Uh, And it shows not only, as we've been talking about, uh, how vulnerable they feel, but also the political momentum uh, against Moscow, the, the, the willingness of European countries to make generational shifts because of what Putin has done in Ukraine, uh, that really cannot be understated how significant, whether uh, from Sweden and Finland, this decision looks like to be, uh, or, or some of the decisions that Germany, for example, has made about its weapons future as well. Well, Amy, if these countries decide to move forward, how quickly would that process move? I think a process is going to be a fairly quick one. Um, I mean, as as Nick said, I mean, both countries are very already closely integrated with NATO, if not formal members. 
Um, but but one thing I think is that, that um, both have expressed a concern about what that process will look like in terms of security guarantees, because we have heard threats threats from Moscow um, making kind of veiled warnings about what they would do in response. It's, of course, unclear whether they would follow up on that or whether those are just hollowed threats. But but certainly, I think officials, European and, and U.S. officials are are looking at, you know, what to do in that interim once the two countries indicate that they, they do want to join NATO and formally apply in those in that time period, be it weeks or months, what kind of security guarantees they would be able to extend to them in the event that Moscow did take some kind of provocative action. Final word to Ukraine's First Lady Olena Zelenska. For security reasons, we haven't seen or heard from her since the war started, but recently she's done a few interviews in writing, including with CNN. Her replies were voiced by an interpreter, and these were her closing remarks. The main thing for Ukraine today is that the whole other world hears and sees us. And it is important that our war does not become habitual so that our victims do not become statistics. That's why I communicate with people through foreign media. Don't get used to our grief. The words of Elena Zelenska, voiced by an interpreter after an email interview with CNN. She's married to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. We're going to move on from Ukraine, but a quick question from Paul, who asks, why is it in America's national interest to admit Sweden into NATO? What's good for Sweden is not necessarily good for the United States. Nick, your thoughts? Well, what the argument that U.S. officials today make and uh, that U.S. officials made in 2008 uh, when Ukraine and Georgia were invited and the 1990s when there was another tranche uh, of Eastern European countries allowed into NATO is that Europe will be more whole, uh, more uh, indivisible and, and more uh, able to defend itself under the NATO umbrella, under the NATO banner. And so uh, the argument that the U.S. makes, again, the administration makes, is that uh, Europe will be uh, more united, uh, more integrated with European and U.S. defenses, and therefore more able to take on a, a foe like Russia that obviously does not only threaten Ukraine, but threatens uh, Western Europe and the United States uh, uh, whether economically or, or militarily. Uh, but there are people who say it is unnecessarily provocative to expand NATO. Uh, those people have largely lost the, the argument over the last few decades, so I don't think there's anything stopping this. But, but there are certainly those who, who would say there's no need to uh, move farther east and, and add countries on Russia's border, uh, but it is up to NATO and Sweden, not, not uh, anyone else, uh, to, to apply to NATO. Well, let's turn to reporting this week from the New York Times that's raising questions about two former Trump White House officials. According to the Times, Jared Kushner and former Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin have secured billions of dollars from the government of Saudi Arabia. The funds to Kushner amount to about $2 billion and were invested in his new private equity firm. Amy, what happened here? So... After leaving, after Trump left office, Jared Kushner set up uh, a private equity firm. Um, and according to this reporting for the, from the New York Times, he secured a $2 billion investment from Saudi, from Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund. And what the New York Times uh, reported this week is they ap- obtained internal documents from that wealth fund um, in which you can kind of see the deliberations playing out about this investment. And senior officials in the sovereign wealth fund raised real concerns about this investment 
investment in Jared Kushner's equity fund. They they pointed out that he doesn't actually have much experience in this kind of finance. His background is really in real estate um, and just raising kind of all kinds of questions about did it have to be two, $2 billion? Could they scale it back? Why the size of investment? And one of the lines in these documents that they obtained that really stood out to me is that, um, you know, in explaining the size of the investment, it said it aims to form a strategic relationship with Affinity Partners founder, Jared Kushner. And so that really gets to the question of, well, was this really about investment in the first place? Or is this an attempt to to kind of further curry favor and build a relationship with, with Jared Kushner and with President Trump's son-in-law? Um, and and, you know, and that's what you know ethics experts that the New York Times spoke to you know really kind of raised a question about this. There is of course no laws in place which prevent former government officials, former White House officials from from pursuing these kind of investments. But it does raise all kinds of ethics questions, particularly given that you know President Trump may seek to to run for office again in 2024, and that Jared Kushner may likely play a prominent role in that. So you know that raises all kinds of questions about you know the relationship any future Trump administration may have with with Saudi Arabia. Well, Emily, what role did Kushner play in the Trump administration's relationship with Saudi Arabia when former President Trump was still in office? Uh, right, exactly. We should remember that, that Kushner and um, the crown prince were close allies. They were WhatsApping one another. Um, there were reports, I believe, from The Intercept that said that, you know, when... when um, Saudi Arabia and its partners took a hard line against Qatar, that, that Kushner was was fully in their corner um, and indeed perhaps encouraged um, more more aggressive action toward the country that then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson stopped. Um, so one of the questions here is, is this a reward for close friendship when he was in the White House and, and not on the Trump team? Or is it as Amy raised the, the possibility of um, laying the groundwork for a fruitful relationship in a potential second Trump term. Um, you know, the crown prince, we should remember, is believed by U.S. intelligence to be ultimately responsible um, for the death of uh, Khashoggi, um, for a variety of other human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, um, including against his own family members. I mean, the list goes on. Um, so... The short answer to your question is they were very close partners. And the longer answer is that Kushner is now clearly reaping financial benefit from a close partnership. Well, clearly and reportedly, I should say, reaping benefits from a close partnership with with this world figure. Um, we should also note that according to the Times report, the $2 billion was twice what former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin got for his new for his financial ventures, um, despite the fact that Mnuchin has more of a proven track record um, with this kind of with handling this kind of money. And Nick, just briefly, what do we know about Kushner's private equity firm, Affinity Partners? Um, I'm not sure that we know that much publicly. Uh, Kushner has not been all that forthcoming with with who his investors are yet. Um, But as Amy and Emily have pointed out, um, you know, this is somebody who uh, not only has a track record operating in this part of the world, both very close to Mohammed bin Salman, very close to former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, was really the person who created the Abraham Accords. Uh, But it also will be someone who is very involved in uh, former President Trump's uh, assumed run for president uh, coming up in the very near future. Uh, And so that's why there's a lot of questions about this investment and, and frankly, all of the uh, investments that he may or may not be doing in the region. 
Well, let's turn now to France. For the third time in the past 20 years, a candidate from the far right has made it through to the runoff round of France's presidential election, and that's causing anxiety for many. Amy, what happened and what happens next? Well, the the next round of runoff in the uh, Marine Le Pen, who is uh, she secured twenty three percent of the vote in uh, in the in the uh, in the runoff of the elections. The second round is going to take place later in April. Um, again, just kind of you know raising all kinds of concerns about you know what France might look like under under a right wing leader. Um, and Marine Le Pen has. Um, uh, has outlined, you know, her ambitions for what it would look like if she, she were to become president, such as leaving the European Union, leaving NATO. I um, mean, I think, you know, you know, we've we've kind of gone through these these bouts of anxiety with French elections before, but you know, I think what this also gets to is, you know, all of these these shock effects that are gonna these these wider ripple effects that are gonna knock on from the war in Ukraine, of course, because there's been incredible rise in inflation in France, and many analysts believe that that has what has driven support for Le Pen in the polls, um, and and this is just the first instances of it. I mean, I think we're gonna see all of these political shock waves playing out in Europe, but also across across the world as all of these second and third order effects from the war in Ukraine play out. Well, that anxiety about the election, as expressed by Democrats, was summed up by French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy, who spoke to the BBC earlier this week. It is five minutes to midnight for France before going to the abyss. So my hope is that there will be an unconditional vote of all the Democrats in my country, Republicans and Democrats, for Emmanuel Macron. If not, it will be a real disaster in the heart of Europe. Nick, to what extent is the election Macron's to lose? And can Le Pen pick up the vote she needs to oust, to oust the current president? Um, we don't know if, if uh, she can pick up the votes. Uh, she will certainly pick up a lot more votes than she did last time when she got 33% to, or 34% to Macron's uh, 66%. Um, is it Macron's to lose? Well, I, I think his critics would say that he has neglected the election. Uh, he has been very focused on, on Ukraine and, and Russia, both courting Putin uh, early on in his administration um, and even kind of right around the beginning of the invasion uh, and then basically saying that that's not going to work more recently. Um, but the overall, uh, I think, uh, argument would be that Macron has neglected uh, the youth, uh, neglected uh, those who feel left behind by Paris, much like Trump um, tried to suggest to um, much of America that Washington had left behind, much like the Brexiters before the Brexit vote argued that Whitehall, that London had left much of rural England, rural Britain behind. And so you get the same populist arguments in in all three cases. Uh, I think the big question is what Le Pen would do with NATO. She would withdraw, she says, from the uh, military coordination body, not from NATO itself. Uh, Would that reduce NATO's ability to uh, help send weapons to Ukraine? Probably not. But her influence on the EU would be very high because she could veto any further sanctions on Russia. Uh, And that is the big push being made uh, by Kyiv, certainly, and to a certain extent by Washington, uh, to get Russian gas, Russian oil uh, out of the continent to replace it in order to reduce Putin's ability to fund his military. Uh, Le Pen could uh, block some of those efforts if she were elected president. Well, and Emily, more broadly, how is Le Pen presenting herself to voters in France? What's her basic platform? What's very interesting to me is that for many years she ran as, as you know, presented herself as 
a basically, to put it bluntly, a far right xenophobe, and has has uh, has tried to mainstream herself over the course of this election. In part, that was because there was also far right candidate Eric Zemmour, and she sort of looked moderate by comparison. Um, we should also note that some of her rhetoric and some of her policies were adopted by the French president, right, who has not always made such a full-throated defense of minorities in France and who has not always um, been the biggest rhetorical booster of NATO and its and its uh, utility. Um, so she's presenting herself as more mainstream this time, despite the fact that she has this long history of just, I mean, outspoken xenophobia um, and, and her... Uh, and as Nick noted, um, particularly younger French citizens are, have, have, you know, are, are buying it. Um, there, I should say that according to polling published first in the New Statesman exclusive, um, the gap between them is widening slightly, but you know, there's still some time between now and the second round. And one question will be whether uh, Mélenchon, who is the far left candidate, whether his voters now go to Macron or if they go to the other, you know, away from the center toward, uh, toward Le Pen. Well, here's something that's never happened before to a sitting prime minister. Uh, today, I've received a fixed penalty notice from the Metropolitan Police relating to an event in Downing Street on the 19th of June 2020. And let me say immediately that I've paid the fine and I once again offer a full apology. The British Prime Minister and his wife were fined this week for attending a birthday party for the PM held despite lockdown rules in Number 10 Downing Street. And as a result, Boris Johnson became the UK's first serving prime minister to be sanctioned for breaking the law. Amy, Johnson is still facing calls for his resignation. Is there any chance he might be forced to go? I think, I mean, the interesting thing about Boris Johnson is he's... Uh, he's very Trump-like in his ability to survive scandals. I mean, throughout the election in 2016 and then throughout Trump's administration, you know, there was various scandals, various revelations would come to light and a lot of people would say, you know, is this it? Is this the moment that his base or that his supporters are going to turn on him? And whilst, you know, and it just, that moment never seemed to to come to fruition, even throughout January 6th. And it's kind of the same with, with Boris Johnson, albeit on a slightly different scale. Um, and it looks like he's, he's you know, he's going to survive. And if anything, I think he's had a bit of a bump in polls lately. Um, and it's been a mixed week for Boris Johnson. I mean, he got this fine um, over the so-called party gate over... Um, revelations that they'd had a party in 10 Downing Street during lockdown. And I think I would just say, you know, for, I think for American audiences, there's, there's been a little bit of puzzlement about why there's such a scandal around why the British are so upset around a garden party. But British lockdowns were really strict when they came into force. You know, there was all kinds of rules about, um, you know, you couldn't, you could only meet one other person even outside. At certain points in the lockdowns, you could only go outside once a day, leave your home once a day. So these were really, really strict. And so, you know, the fact that the prime minister, that his inner circle were having not just one, but a number of parties in 10 Downing Street, both inside and outside, during the worst months of the pandemic prior to the vaccine coming out, has just been seen as a stunning hypocrisy by by many in the British public. And that is why this has become such a lightning rod issue. Um, but he's, you know, he's, Boris Johnson has had a mixed week. You know, he got this, you know, he got this, this fine, this, um, this legal rebuke, the first ever handed to a British prime minister. But at the same time, he was in Ukraine this week, he walked the streets of the Ukrainian capital with the 
with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, which was um, a very, very powerful gesture of support um, for Ukraine during its, its war with Russia. And, and I think that has that has gone some way, um, certainly amongst Boris Johnson's supporters, but even amongst others, um, to, to kind of pull him back from the brink slightly um, to give a little bit of this uh, this rally around the flag effect. Very briefly, in just a sentence or two, I'd love to hear a story each of you are watching or one that you think maybe didn't get enough attention this week. Emily, I'll come to you first. We talked about the ICC earlier and how the United States has not always been its uh, staunchest supporter. Um, This week, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar came out and said the United States should join the ICC. And so I will be curious to see whether or not that goes anywhere. Amy, what about for you? We have been watching um, Mali and the Sahel um, and the uh, what Russian mercenaries are doing in that country um, and, 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 and how that's all going to factor into counterterror efforts in the region. Nick, I'll give you the last word here. An extraordinary crackdown on Shanghai, uh, China's industrial hub, uh, financial hub, Asia's financial hub, uh, really just exploding in anger and frustration over COVID restrictions that Chinese used to trust that we saw in Wuhan and now are turning against uh, the very officials who are implementing them. That's Nick Schifrin, foreign affairs and defense correspondent for PBS NewsHour, Amy McKinnon, national security reporter for foreign policy, and Emily Tampkin, the U.S. editor for The New Statesman. Thanks to you all. 1A's managing producer is Paige Osborne. Jacqueline Hill is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again on Monday. This is 1A. 